From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to it. Uh, mm, let me try that again. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. All right, Wednesday, July 6th, 2022. And we are studying the Torah portion of Chukat, also known as Chukas, depending on your pronunciation of Hebrew. Chukat opens with a mitzvah. Well, Chukat is, comes from the phrase Chukat Torah, Zot Chukat Torah. This is the decree of the Torah, Rashi said, we studied it yesterday, decree um, emphasizes or expresses the fact that these types, or this mitzvah, and this type of mitzvah, category of mitzvah, is not one that is rational, but it's super rational. So there are some mitzvot that make a lot of sense. Do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, right? These types of things, they make sense. If somebody touches a dead body, you need to take a red heifer, uh, burn, uh, um, slaughter it, sprinkle its blood toward the temple, burn it with a few other items, reduce it to ashes, mix it with natural spring water, sprinkle it on the person that touched the dead body on day three and day seven, then they become purified. That makes no sense. When I say it makes no sense, it means that's not something that the logical mind says, oh yeah, totally reasonable, I get that. The rational mind says, why? Why all of that. Why any of that? <laughs> what does it mean that you become impure in the first place? And how does this ritual accomplish purification? Why the red heifer? And why the slaughtering? And why the sprinkling of the blood? And why the burning? None of this makes sense. And so, as we learned yesterday, Rashi says that God is essentially telling us, this is my desire. This is my, this is what I want. You have no permission to contemplate it further. Which means, don't question it, you're wasting your time. Don't question it. You can do whatever you want, right? But don't question, don't bother questioning it because you're not going to find, you're not going to find um, the answer that you're looking for because ultimately this is a divine decree. I want to share with you an insight from Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy on this. And that is that essentially every mitzvah is a chok. Let me explain. Every mitzvah ultimately is a divine decree. Because Hashem wants, that's why we do it. The fact that our minds also can wrap our heads around a rationale is a secondary level to the mitzvah itself. Let me say this again in different words. So you, you encounter the prohibition against stealing. And you say to yourself, makes sense, makes sense. It's not mine, I shouldn't take it. Um, if I take your stuff, then someone's going to take my stuff. Like it makes sense. Comes along Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy and says, yeah, it makes sense to you, great. But that's not why the mitzvah exists. In other words, the mitzvah doesn't begin with rationale. The mitzvah begins with God's will. The same God who desires, who, who wants, 
that the purification for someone who touched a dead body should happen with the ashes of the red heifer mixed with spring water, that same God also wants us not to steal. The fact that I also understand it is not why the mitzvah exists. It's icing on the cake on top of the mitzvah itself. Again, there's two dimensions. There's God's will, and then there is the logical piece of it. There's what God wants, and then there's what makes sense to me. And what's important, again, in this analysis, what's important is to realize that whether we understand it, whether we don't understand it, a mitzvah is ultimately about God's will. Every mitzvah, even the mishpatim, even the mitzvahs that we do understand, are really about God wants it and we're doing it. Which means, just like we do the mitzvah of paraduma, the red heifer, with surrender, surrender meaning, I don't know why, I'm just doing it, I'm following God. It's like a recipe, right? I don't know, Rabbi Aris Potato Kogel, I would not do it like this, but you know what? I'm surrendering to the recipe. So we surrender to the mitzvah of paraduma. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm burning this cow. I don't know why it's red. I don't know why the ashes. I don't know why the water. I don't know why the hyssop. But you do it. You do it because that's what the Abishur says. That's what God says. That's the same way we should do every mitzvah. Every mitzvah should be done from the perspective of this is what God wants. And God has chosen to allow me to understand it, but that's also what God wants. God wants certain mitzvot that we should not understand them. And God wants a certain mitzvot we should understand them. I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense? In other words, everything really boils down to God's will, God's desire. God wants all 613. Some of them, He wants us also to understand it. But our understanding is not because we're so smart or because the mitzvah makes so much sense. It's because God has said that this, God has decreed that this mitzvah should make sense to us. And that mitzvah should not make sense to us. In other words, there's a parallel universe where theoretically the red heifer would make sense to us and not stealing wouldn't. The upshot of all this, hi Faye, welcome. Great to see you. Right. Great to have you here. The upshot of all this, in other words, so, so what? It sounds very philosophical and theoretical. There's a few practical implications of all this. Number one, every mitzvah, even the ones that we understand, should be done with reverence. Every mitzvah, even the one that makes total logical sense, a person should do it out of reverence to God. God wanted I do it. The second point is, as the Rebbe pointed out many times, is that that is the only antidote to human um, self-justification. Human beings have, a, have an uncanny gift and ability to justify the craziest things. The Nazis, Yemach Shemam, may their memories be obliterated, the Nazis justified their actions. They went home at night and they had dinner with their families and they hugged their kids and they, they, you know, they led family lives when by day they were murdering Jews. There was a justification in their heads that said, you know, people are valuable, but these people aren't. There was a justification. I'm not going to justify it. I'm not a Nazi. They, right? I'm just clarifying that for the record. They justified that. They were able to somehow rationalize that. The Rebbe spoke about this many times. He said, I was in Berlin. The Rebbe was studying the University of Berlin in the 1930s. I was, he said, I was in Berlin in the 1930s. The most sophisticated, the most academic, the smartest people around. And yet, look what they did. Because smarts 
Intelligence does not equal morality. No matter how smart you are, you could be immoral. Intelligence is not a barometer of morality. Are you with me on this? Just because someone's smart doesn't mean they're moral. Two different things. The Rebbe says sometimes the smarter you are, the more you can justify unjustifiable behavior. In other words, the the more immoral you might be. You with me on this? If you're really smart, you might justify the most immoral stuff. You know, like, um, you know, in school, the smarter the kid, the more they can talk their way out of anything. Yeah? So it's like they can, you can talk yourself out of anything or into anything because you're so smart. So what's the antidote to immorality? It's having a higher standard that's absolute. God says, do not murder. I do not murder. I am going to say, well, in this case, in that case, in the other case, it's not up to me. So when a mitzvah, when I'm doing a mitzvah because I understand it, sounds great. Oh, it resonates. The problem is, once it's my understanding, I can twist it. But if I surrender to the mitzvah, like the red heifer, I'm just, God, you tell me what to do. I'm doing it. I'm, I don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just, or why I'm doing this. I mean, I know why, but like, I don't know how this works. I'm just going to follow your recipe. Then it actually keeps us out of trouble. The more it's, the more we feel like we figured it out, the more we can twist things and say, ah, in this case, sure. In that case, no. Like we start, we suddenly make deals with ourselves. I, you know, based on my understanding, it seems like it won't, it would apply here and not there. Okay, all right, now, now, you've, uh, now you're driving this thing, not God. So number one, let God drive the ship. Number two, when we're driving, we can go completely off the rails. And again, that's what, in an extreme example, you end up with a Holocaust. You end up with, with a people, with a group of people, a, a large group of people that can justify in their minds murdering six million people, including a million and a half children. They justified it. I'm not justified. They justified it for themselves. They slept at night. They weren't tortured. Maybe some of them were. By and large, they slept very peacefully at night. How? Somehow in their minds, they were able to justify it. That's the danger of doing things. Uh, that's the danger of injecting your understanding in, in a mitzvah. So, so if they believe that murder is wrong, sure. But on my terms, murder is wrong. And on my terms, murder is fine. That's the justification. Whereas from a chok perspective, a divine decree perspective, it's not up to me. It's not, it's not in my wheelhouse. It's not up to me as to when this is good or when this is not good. It's absolute. Murder is wrong. Murder is murder. And I can't, and I can't do it. Anyway, just some insights on chukat hatorah, chukat, this week's Torah portion. It's all about chukim, the chok, the super rational decree. The mitzvah that's not based on our understanding, the mitzvah that's based on what God wants. And that's a powerful thing. Powerful thing to do it based on what God wants. Number one, it connects us to God in all situations, not just ourselves. Number two, it makes it keeps us honest. It keeps us on target, even if our minds go elsewhere. If we're committed, we're committed. Surrender is valuable. Surrender is valuable. Listen, God also wants to, also wants us to understand, but never limit it to the understanding. It's kind of like um, relationships. Yeah, let's talk about commitment in a relationship. 
So let's say, uh, a second here, let's say committed in a, uh, hold on one second. Sorry, awkward. Um, okay, so in, in a relationship, imagine, imagine you are, you commit, yeah, marry, you get married, you commit to someone. So, you know, what, what is the purpose of marriage? If you think about it, what's the purpose of, um, of marriage? Why commit? Why not just say, it makes sense, we're going we're gonna to be together and that's it. You know, why not just say that? And the answer is that the commitment extends it much further than just what makes sense logically. What makes sense logically is that some, you know, if you base it on mood and what makes sense, well, some days I'm more excited, some days a person is more excited, some days a person is less excited in anything. But a commitment is locked in. Commitment means that we're locked in. Commitment means that it doesn't matter how I'm feeling, what I'm doing, you know, the mood, whatever. Um, commitment is commitment. So a chok evokes commitment. I'm not doing the red heifer because it makes sense. I'm doing it because God wants, God said, God commanded, right? Someone's impure, we got to do the red heifer. Um, so that's why we do it. And that keeps it committed. That, keep, that keeps us committed and that keeps us in a, in a place where it's absolute and, and less impervious to the fluctuations. Okay, I hope this makes sense. Now, I want to, I want to, I'm going to share my screen. Let's pick up with some Rashi's. Okay, so let's go to reading number two. Rabbi, is the Hebrew word murder or kill? Murder. Okay. Thank you. Um, murder. Yeah. Now let's take a look at the Midrash. All right, here we go. I have transcribed a homiletic interpretation from the commentary of Moshe Adarshan, the preacher, which is as follows. So now, this is where we left off yesterday in the Rashis. Okay? So this is all going all the way back to the beginning of the Torah portion where it talks about the mitzvah of Red Heifer. So the opening verse said, or opening verses said, that they should take the Red Heifer, take them, uh, and have them take for you, Rashi, from their own possessions, just as they remove their own golden earrings for the golden calf, so they shall bring this cow from their own possessions in atonement. In other words, the cow, the, sorry, the red heifer is not a communal red heifer. It's a personal red heifer. It comes from the people. Okay, so that is that. Red cow, this can be compared to the son of a maidservant who soiled the king's palace. They said, let his mother come and clean up the mess. Right? So the, kid, the maidservant's kid made a mess, so we say to the maidservant, you clean it up. Similarly, let the cow come and atone for the calf. So the parents are cleaning it. Well, I don't know why you need a maidservant and a thing. A house, right? Kid make kid spill something. Who's cleaning it up? Yeah? I mean, if the kid's old enough, sure. But if the kid's too young, who cleans up the mess? The parents. The parents clean up the mess. Right? So in this case, let the cow come and atone for the calf. The golden calf was a sin. The paraduma, the red heifer, is atoning for the calf. Now, you might be wondering, what, what does one have to do with the other? We're talking about... Uh, the red heifer atoning for the golden calf what yeah so the understanding here is that death death is on some level a result of the sin of the golden calf um, um, 
One second, one second, one second, one second. Um, okay, so basically all death on somehow, somehow is attributed to the sin of the golden calf because all death is attributed to the sin of the tree of knowledge. Remember Adam and Eve's sin with the tree of knowledge? That instituted death in the world. And it says that when the Torah was given, the impurity kind of dissipated. It was like a, a holy situation. And then with the sin of the golden calf, impurity once again revisited the world. So really all death is somehow attributed to the sin of the golden calf. Um, and so death renders one impure and what atones for that or what cleanses that is the red heifer let the mother cow, right? The red heifer is, a, is an adult female cow. Let that atone for the golden calf, the, the, the baby. That was the problem. Okay, back inside, back inside. Red, why red, why red? Again, we're gonna get into a homiletical understanding of this. Why is it red? Um, it's red alluding to the verse if they, your sins, prove to be as red as crimson dye, for sin is described as being red. Okay, so that's uh, why, why the red heifer. Again, this is a question that one might ask in general. Why a red heifer? Why not a, a black heifer? Why not any other color? Because sins are alluded to as red. It's an allusion for sins. Sins are called red in Isaiah. Why perfect? In allusion to the Israelites who were perfect but became blemished. That means through the sin of the golden calf. Let this come and atone for them so that they regain their perfection, they regain that purity, upon which no, loke, which no yoke was laid, just as they cast off from themselves the yoke of heaven. So just like they cast off the yoke of heaven by sinning with the golden calf, so too this, gold, this red heifer should not have, have a yoke on it. Bring it to Luzzer the Kohen. Just as they assembled against Aaron, who was a Kohen to make a calf, to make the calf, but because Aaron made the calf, the service was not performed through him. For the prosecution cannot serve as the defense. This is very interesting. Why didn't Aaron the high priest do the red heifer? Because Aaron made the calf, or he was involved in the making of the golden calf. So the guy who made the golden calf, who was part of the making of the golden calf, could not serve as a defense with the making of the red heifer. Okay, the cow should be burned just as the calf was burned. Again, there's a very strong parallel here. This is the line, uh, very strong parallel between the two episodes, the sin of the golden calf and the red heifer. You throw in to the burning calf, uh, to the burning heifer, sorry, the red heifer, a piece of cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson wool. These three types of objects correspond to the 3,000 men who fell because of the sin of the golden calf. The cedar is the highest of all trees, and the hyssop is the lowest of all of them. This symbolizes that the one of high standing who acts haughtily and sins should lower himself like a hyssop and worm. For talas means worm as well as crimson and he will then gain atonement. So the point is why cedar and hyssop? If you're arrogant, like cedar would, like tall like cedar, then lower yourself like hyssop. And crimson also can mean worm, same Hebrew word, tolas, can mean either crimson or worm. And um, I think maybe even they got the dye, the crimson dye from a worm, so they're really connected. Anyway, the point is that um, uh, a worm means low to the ground, so go from cedar to hyssop and crimson and the worm. 
a keepsake, keep some of the red heifer ashes for a keepsake, just as the transgression of the calf, the golden calf, is preserved throughout the generations for retribution. As I mentioned, for there is no reckoning punishment, which does not include a reckoning for the calf, which means any time there's a punishment or a tragedy or a death or whatever, it somehow is tied into the golden calf. As it says, but on the day I will make an accounting of sins upon them, I will bring their sin to account. In other words, on the day that I make an accounting of sins, I'm going to bring that original, not original sin, like in the, but the golden calf sin to, to account. Just as the calf defiled all those who were involved in it, so does the cow render unclean all those involved with it. Interesting. And just as they were cleansed through the ashes, as it says, he scattered the ashes of the burnt calf upon the surface of the waters, so with the cow they shall take for that unclean person from the ashes of the burnt purification offering. So basically all these Rashis, we just had a bunch of Rashis in a row, okay, right here, all highlighted in blue, all those Rashis that we did today, they're all creating the parallel between or expressing the parallel between um, the golden calf sin and the paraduma. And again, just to clarify, I know I mentioned it, but I really want to clarify this. What's the connection? The, the paraduma, the red heifer, our Torah portion of mitzvah, is purifying after contact with death, which means that death is not a positive thing. Death is, is not a good thing. It's a sad thing. It's a tragedy. It's a loss. It's, it, it hurts. And it renders one on many different levels impure. It, it, it creates a, a, a hole, a blemish, a blemish. It creates a, it, it hurts. And so how do we heal? How do we purify? Through the red heifer. And the red heifer is basically trying to not fix, but, 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 but respond to, 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 to loss of life, human life. And again, where does the loss of human life come from? It's attributed to the sins of the golden calf. And of course, the sin of Adam and Eve. Thus, they are connected conceptually. All right, now with this, all, all that we've done so far is basically to get up to the new text, today's text, which is the story of the hitting of the rock and the decree against Moses not to enter the land of Israel. These are There's a very big narrative, and it begins with Numbers chapter 20, verse number 1. Here we go. The entire congregation of the children of Israel arrived at the desert of Zin in the first month. Okay? So they arrive there, and they are getting ready to march forward to Israel. At this point, as Rashi points out, the narrative jumps 40 years, or really 39 years. It's at the end of the 40 years of wandering. What happened in all that time, we don't know. It's not recorded. We literally cut from the story of well, we had the, the spies and then Korach that all happened around the same time. That was the decree of wandering for 40 years. And then we cut all the way to the end of that span, the end of the 40 years. Now the children of Israel arrive at the desert of Zin in the first month. The people settle in Kadesh. That's Kadesh Barnea. Now, again, at the end of the 40 years, Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam, we now have the first death from that royal family, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, and Moshe, right? Those three, Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. So Miriam dies, she's the oldest, then Aaron, then, then Moses. Miriam dies, she passes away in Kadesh, in the desert of Zin, or Tzin, Midbar Tzin. All right, let's continue to the next verse. So she passes away. Remember, she was a prophetess, righteous woman, she 
led the song of the sea for the women uh, after the splitting of the sea, etc. By all accounts, she um, uh, it was by her idea that uh, that that her parents should get back together again after they had separated, and, and they that's when Moses was born. And she watched Moses when he was a little baby on the on, uh, put a place on the basket uh, on the Nile River, etc. So she passes away. The next thing you know is the congregation had no water. That's going to be key. Congregation had no water. Didn't a well always travel with Miriam? Exactly. Exactly. Once she dies, suddenly, as you see here, the congregation had no water. That's what leads our sages to conclude that the water is associated with Miriam and came in her honor. By the way, tonight's Torah studies class is going to be about this. Miriam and no water and all the, the connection between them and all that good stuff. Um, so she dies. There's no water. So what they do? So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and they said, if only we had died with the death of our brothers before the Lord. It's interesting. They're almost, remember this is the end of the 40 years. This is the next generation. They're still like repeating some, some lines of their parents. If only we had died. But what this means maybe is if only we had died throughout the 40 years. Shame that we're still alive and now we're going to die of thirst. At least everyone else died peacefully in their sleep. By the way, just to clarify, over the last 40 years, which again, the Torah cuts the story, but in that span of 40 years, people died natural deaths. They got older, they went to sleep, they died. That's it, they died natural deaths. And now the next generation, they're supposed to go into Israel, so they're alive. And now they have no water. And so they're saying to Moses, hey, this is ridiculous. We're going to die of thirst. We're going to die of starvation No, or whatever. There's no water. That's a horrible, that's a painful death. We'd rather have died with our, with our brethren. We'd rather have died a, a, a natural death than this unnatural, painful situation. Let's get back inside. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord to this desert? so that we and our livestock should die there. This desert has no water. Why have you taken us out of Egypt? Again, this is 40 years later. To bring us to this evil place. It is not a place for seeds or for fig trees, grapevines or pomegranate trees. And, as of now, there's no water to drink. You see what they liked. They wanted seeds, they wanted fig trees, grapevines, pomegranate trees. They had decent taste. I get that. Uh, but there's no water now. All right, here we go. So what happens next? Moses and Aaron moved away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they went to the Mishkan, and they fell on their faces, uh, ostensibly in prayer and supplication to God for some guidance here. Then the glory of God appeared to them. Bam, bam, bam. All right, a little uh, dramatic flourish there to the, at the end. Now we're still in the middle of the, we're in the, middle of the story, but let's look at Rashi before we go to the next reading, okay? Let's do a little Rashi, and then we're going we're gonna to move to the next one. All right. The entire congregation, that means the complete congregation. What does that mean? For the ones destined to die in the desert had already died, and these were assigned for life. In other words, anyone who, who needed to die out over the 40 years was already dead. And whoever was there, these were the ones that were destined to live and enter Israel. Miriam died there. Rashi asks a very intriguing question. Rashi asks a very intriguing question. Why is the passage relating Miriam's death 
juxtaposed with the passage of the red cow? What's the connection between Miriam's death and the red heifer? To teach you that just as sacrifices bring atonement, so the death of the righteous secure atonement. Look at that. That's interesting. Just like uh, a sacrifice brings atonement, so too misas tzadikim mechaperes, the death of the righteous, secure atonement. So Miriam's passing secured some level of atonement. Miriam died there. She too died through a kiss from God's mouth rather than by the angel of death. Very interesting. She died through a kiss from God's mouth, so to speak. Obviously, God doesn't have a physical mouth. Now, why does it not say by God's mouth as it does with Moses? Because it's not respectful to speak of the Most High in this way. In other words, it's not, uh, um, it's not a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not um, appropriate. It's not um, modest. That's the word I was looking for. It's not modest to say that, God, that Miriam died with God's kiss. It's just, uh, just you know, we just wouldn't, wouldn't use that phrase in a modest way. So it says that Moses died with, with God's kiss. Aaron dies, right? Concerning Aaron, it does say by God's mouth. So Aaron dies by God's mouth. Moses dies by God's mouth. But Miriam, okay, it just says that she passed away. Even though it was also by God's mouth, it just doesn't say that because, again, maybe it might sound a little immodest. Now, had no water, as Ray pointed out a moment ago, from here we learned that all 40 years they had the well in Miriam's merit. All 40 years of the water, it was all attributed to Miriam. Miriam, I guess, was connected with water. You know, she was standing by the river. Whatever. Okay, Miriam, the well was in her honor and her merit. And now that she died, there was no water. Let's continue. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died. We wish that we had died. With the death of our brothers from the plague. This teaches that death from thirst is more dreadful than death by plague. Oh, they didn't say peaceful death. Even plague death. Ah, we'd rather have a plague than, uh, than, than, than dying of thirst. Okay? Um, okay, grammatical stuff. Okay, that takes us to the end. So, so where we're up to right now in the narrative, let's just reset the scene. Miriam passes away, and just chaos breaks out because there's no water. The water source dries up, and now people are panicking, and now they're turning against Moses and Aaron and saying, what are you, what are you guys doing to us? We're all going to die. Um, one thing that I must point out, I have to point this out, is the tragedy of Miriam's death not being mourned. Miriam died, was buried, and there's no mention of the people mourning her, grieving her. You know why? Because they had no water. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. You find this sometimes in families. You find where a loved a parent passes away, and the next thing you know, that there's a quarrel that breaks out in the family because they're fighting over something. In this case, they were fighting about water or no water. But in some cases, it's about money. In some cases, they're fighting about money and the estate and the will, blah, blah, blah. And what happens is that everyone forgets about the deceased. No one's mourning because everyone's fighting. And to me, the Torah is giving us a very powerful cautionary tale right here. The Torah says, look what happened to Miriam. She, died, she passes away. They, she's buried. And then no one mourns her. You know why? Because they're already fighting. I mean, they're scared. I mean, yes, they didn't have water. So that's, I guess it's justifiable to be a little anxious. But then 
They begin fighting with Moses and Aaron and with God and all that stuff. So I think the message, to me, the message is very powerful. It's let's not quibble. Quibble? Let's not quibble about the little things. Because the, 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 our loved ones are more important than, than the fights. It's easier said than done, right? I, you know, but I feel like we get too caught up in, in, in the stuff. It becomes a whole parsha, and then next thing you know, it's like, oh, yeah, the person passed away. Whoops, totally forgot about them. And giving them nachas, and you know, certainly, you know, how just how would they feel about watching their loved ones just duke it out? You know, and imagine their soul looking down and being like, guys, come on, that's the legacy that I left. A big fight. That's not it's not respectful for us or for them or for anybody. Anyway, just some some uh, uh, some some th- uh, food for that. Okay, reading number three. Let's continue. But they have no water. So what happens? Numbers chapter 20. So at this point, Moses and Aaron fell down before God and said, basically, God, help. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and listen, listen carefully, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock in their presence so that it will give forth its water. It's given water before, It'll give water again, just speak to the rock. You shall bring forth water for them from the rock and give the congregation and their livestock to drink. So, yeah, you'll bring forth water and then everybody will drink and it will all be good. Seems so simple. Verse 9, Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock, as God said. And Moses said to them, Now listen, you rebels. Can we draw water for you from this rock? I guess he was trying to set it up in dramatic fashion. What do you guys think, you non-believers, you rebels? Do you think we can do this? Kind of like a magician. You think I can uh, <laughs> make this card appear out of the deck? Oh, whatever. Moses raised his hand and, uh uh-oh, struck the rock with his staff twice. First time, didn't respond even because he did the wrong thing. So he had to hit it twice. When, I'm going to add the word finally, an abundance of water gushed forth and the congregation and their livestock drank. Now, if you read this very quickly, you would conclude verse 11 and say, yay, success. Miriam died. The water dried up. Moses prayed. God delivered. Moses hit the rock and the water gushed forth and everybody had water. Beautiful. But clearly something went wrong because look at the next verse. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, since you did not have faith in me, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly to the land which I have given them. Whoa! There's a punishment here. Since you did not have faith in me to sanctify me, therefore, you're not going to go into Israel. And it continues. These are the waters of dispute, strife, May Meribah, where the children of Israel contended with the Lord and, and he was sanctified through them. What is going on here? 
What is going on here? There's a sin, there's a lack of sanctification, or there is sanctification, or, or, or there's a punishment that happens now against Moses and Aaron. What's going on here? What exactly? Yeah. Do you, do you think that um, that he may have been uh, grieving so much for, for Miriam, both of them, that, and that they didn't have a, have time to uh, to really grieve properly, and so he, he got angry and struck the, and struck the rock? Could be. Could be, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, um, kind of, um, uh, analysis, yeah. So so I want to break down what exactly is the difference between what God says to Moses and what Moses actually did, because obviously something went haywire, something went went sideways, which leads to God saying, "You messed up. You're not going in to Israel." What happened? So the first thing we need to know is God said, speak to the rock. And Moses instead struck the, struck the rock twice. So that's one variation. God says, speak, Moses hit. Uh, Faye, what you're mentioning is maybe why is because he was distracted or mourning or set, whatever it is. And so he just, you know, or maybe was triggered emotionally. And so he just, he hits the rock. Okay, but that's one distinction. I'll share with you another. You should know there's dozens of commentaries that give their own twist on what exactly Moses did wrong. Um, that which prompts one commentary to say, Moses did one thing wrong, and the commentaries made him do dozens of things wrong. Are you with me on this? Because every commentary says he did something else wrong. So <laughs> Moses did one thing, but you have like dozens of commentaries about, so the commentaries make it worse than the original. Anyway, but, but let's, let's look back at the, at the text and see kind of what, what, what is different. So number one, speaking or hitting the rock, that's obvious. The next thing is, look look how he sets it up. Now listen, you rebels. Why is he calling the people rebels? Why, why, the, why the negative? Why the negativity? Why is he dissing? Why is he disrespecting the people? That's not a good thing. And then uh, one more thing that I'm going to point out is, he says, can we draw water for you from this rock? In other words, it's rhetorical. Do you think we can? And the answer is, yes, we can. But did we draw water or did God draw water? Are you with me? It's almost like he took the credit. He was taking the credit for what was going to happen with drawing water from the rock. Can we draw water? And the answer was going to be yes. Look at look at what I look at what I'm about to do. And it's really not we. It's he with a capital H, i.e., God. So three differences: speaking versus hitting, um, calling the people rebels, and then taking credit. We can we draw water? Uh, kind of owning that himself and, and, and downplaying the fact that God is going to do the miracle. Which kind of leads, I think, naturally to what God says, since you did not have faith in me to sanctify me. You didn't attribute it to me. You called them rebels. You hit the rock instead of speaking to it, etc. Okay, so that, that, those are some insights into this. Let's look at Rashi. Of course, Rashi has a take on this. Let's go. Um... Yeah, shall we draw water water from this rock, Rashi? Since they did not recognize it, they didn't recognize which rock it was. In other words, Rashi says some... (laughs) The rock got lost. As long as it was producing water for 40 years, they knew which rock it was. But suddenly, something happened. For the rock had gone and settled among the other rocks when the well departed. Somehow, 
This rock? I don't know. Did it roll? Rock and roll? Did it move? Did it walk like a uh, like a school play and the tree starts moving? I, you know, because it's a kid. I don't know exactly what you know how this works, but according to Rashi, which is based on the Medrash, right? According to Rashi, the rock that had produced the well all these years had now gone missing, or not missing, but settled amongst the other rocks. The Israelites said to them, to Moses and Aaron, what difference is it to you from which rock you draw water for us? Who cares? It's a miracle anyway, so pick any rock. Therefore he said to them, Hamorim, obstinate ones, fools, those who teach, um, fools, those who teach their teachers. Okay, can we, all right, you're telling us how to do these things. Can we draw water from this rock regarding which we were not commanded? Ah, that explains what he said. Not rebels, but really not rebels, fools. Now listen, you fools, can we draw water for you from this rock? In other words, from a rock that's not the right rock. We first have to find the right rock. The right, why can't I speak? I'm getting tongue twisted here. We first have to find the correct rock and then we can proceed. He hits it twice. Why twice, Rashi? Because the first time he drew out only a few drops. Since God had not commanded him to strike it, but you shall speak to it. However, they spoke to a different rock and nothing came out. Remember, they weren't sure which rock it was. Hey, rock, how about some water? Nope, didn't work. So they said, perhaps we ought to strike it first. It says, and strike the rock. They came upon that very rock and struck it. So they spoke to one rock. It didn't work. Then they hit a different rock, and that was the right rock, and then water came out. But they hit it instead of speaking to it. All right, here we go. Scripture, since you did not have faith in me, Scripture reveals that if it were not for this sin alone, they would have entered the land. That it should not be said of them, the sin of Moses and Aaron was like the sin of the generation of the desert, against whom was decreed that they should not enter the land. But was not the question asked by Moses of sheep and cattle were slaughtered for them, a more grievous sin than this? However, there he, Moses, said it in private. The so Scripture spares him and refrains from punishing him. Here, on the other hand, it was said in the presence of all Israel, Scripture does not spare him because of the sanctification of the name. In other words, Moses... This is the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, and that's why Moses decreed not to go in. But remember when Moses challenged God? I mean, could, when the people asked for meat and Moses said, God, can you really provide meat? That seems to be a more of a challenge to God. How come God didn't say then, well, then you're not going into the land because you don't have faith in me or believe in me? The answer is because that was a private conversation. This was a public act of lack of faith in God, right? Again, since you did not have faith in me, Rashi asked, but Moses already one other time didn't have faith in God when he said, how can you provide enough meat for the people? But that was private, this was public. To sanctify me. For had you spoken to the rock and had given forth water, I would have been sanctified in the eyes of the congregation. They would have said, if this rock, which neither speaks nor hears and does not require sustenance, fulfills the word of the omnipresence, how much more should we? In other words, the rock can't see, can't hear, can't think, and uh, doesn't get rewarded for anything, and it still does what God wants, producing water how much more so should we do what God wants we do we can think we can feel we can see and we have skin in the game therefore you're not going to enter the land of Israel God says these are the waters of dispute Rashi what does it mean these are the waters of dispute these are the ones mentioned elsewhere because Pharaoh's astrologers years earlier uh, 40 plus years earlier saw that these waters when they foresaw that the Savior, oh, I'm sorry, 119 years earlier or so, Pharaoh's astrologers saw, that, saw these waters when they foresaw that the Savior of Israel would be smitten through water. 
And that is why they decreed every son who is born you shall cast into the Nile. That decree of throwing the boys into the Nile was a result of the astrologers seeing that their savior of Israel would be smitten. Smitten meaning punished through water. When did that come to fruition? These are the waters of dispute right here. And he was sanctified through them for Moses and Aaron died because of them. When God judges holy ones, he is feared and sanctified by mankind. Okay, so when, how is he sanctified through them? Through them being facing consequences for not listening to God exactly. That itself sanctifies God's name, emphasizing um, God's awesomeness. God judges holy ones, he is feared and sanctified by mankind. I got to tell you a few things. I got to tell you a few things. I'm going to add, add some, some insights. We did Rashi, but let me tell you how I understand all this stuff. Number one, we, at least the way we look, I say we, I look at the story, we're going to try to eliminate as much error on Moses' part as possible. We're talking about Moses. We don't want to make Moses like you and I. Moses was Moses. If there's any mistake that we would make and we're saying, well, that's what Moses did, that's like, that's that's schlepping Moses down to our level. I hope that makes sense. Let's understand this on a higher level. There's a few insights that I want to share with you. And we'll start with number one. Number one. is that the very reason why God said, according to Rashi, that this did not sanctify my name is the very reason that Moses hit the rock. Because Moses thought to himself the following. If I hit the rock, sorry, if I speak to the rock and the rock listens, forever God will use this or the accusing angel will use this against the, people of the, the Jewish people. Imagine the prosecuting angel above. Imagine. Imagine the ammunition that this angel would have saying to God, these people don't listen to you. Even a rock listened to you. Even a rock produced water based on your command. Moses, you told Moses to tell the rock to produce water and it did it. You told Moses to tell the Jewish people to behave like a mensch and they're not listening. They're worse than a rock. You see that? Moses did not want to give God the opportunity or give the prosecuting angel the opportunity to ever use the rock as a source of liability or punishment for the Jewish people. Never say that the rock is better than the Jew. Never. Never let the rock have produced through just speaking. Moses says, you know how the rock is going to produce water? Through hitting. Moses essentially took one for the team, like the dedicated leader that he was. He said to himself, I will not let the people look bad at the hands of a rock. If, the, if I speak to the rock and the rock just, ooh, gushes water, then forever the question is going to be, no, what about you guys? How come you guys are not following God's will when God tells you what to do? Why are you guys fooling around, goofing off? A rock, listen, how come not you? Moses says, I will not give that ammunition. Therefore, I'm going to hit the rock. Yeah, the rock also needs some hitting. Also needs some clap. Also needs some, you know, some uh, some heavy, heavy shaking to produce. Okay. So also the Jewish people sometimes they need, uh, you know, it, it's it's not so smooth and and there's some bumps in the road, just like the rock. Moses did not want the rock to look better. 
than his people. That's number one. Number two, another insight. And that is that Moses simply was too connected with his generation to recognize that the times had changed. Now that might be considered a liability, but it's also a fact. What I mean by that is that when the people complained against Moses and Aaron, we have no water, we're going to die, Egypt was better. Moses thought that he was hearing the same words from the same people that he took out of Egypt. Those people required some tough love. They were slaves. They required tough love for 40 years, very tough love. Moses knew how to, you know, whip them into shape, so to speak. And so Moses symbolically hits the rock. God says, no. New generation. This generation, they're scared. They're not obstinate. They're frightened. They're anxious. They're not... There's no other agenda here. Your generation that you took out of Egypt, they were more complicated. These people, they're just a little afraid. They just give them water, hook them up with water. You can speak to them and assuage their fears. You can speak to them and give them comfort. You don't have to hit them. You don't have to strike. I don't mean literally. You don't have to use tough love. You don't have to use force. You could speak. In other words, the rock is a metaphor for the people themselves. How do you produce water? Through speaking or through hitting? How do you get results? Through encouragement, through explanations, through dialogue, or through tough approach. For 40 years, Moses had to use a tough approach on that generation, the original generation. They were a tough people. They had been through a lot of trauma. They needed a tougher approach. The new generation did not need a tough approach. When Moses hits the rock, God says, okay, you're such a Rebbe, you're such a leader to your people, you can't even relate to a new generation. So better that you stay with your generation and let someone else lead the new generation, someone who can relate to them on their terms. Anyway, some, some, some uh, food, of thought, uh, food for thought. Ultimately, what this second insight comes to teach us, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, is that if you can produce results through speaking, you have no permission to hit. And I, again, I don't mean this literally, never hit in general, um, right? That's good. a good way in life is don't use physical force. But I mean even conceptually. If you can get somewhere through diplomacy, through positive means, there's no reason to take a tough approach. There's no reason to go down you know, a hard line if you can take a positive approach. Moses leads with a hard approach and God says, not anymore. Not, not now. Not, not for now. This is not a, the approach for today. All right, so um, we're going we're gonna to conclude with this. So just to recap, we learned today, we did Rashi's um, supporting the connection or explaining the connection beautifully between the red heifer and the golden calf. The mother cleans up the mess of the kid, the red heifer. The adult female cow cleans up the mess of the golden calf, the baby cow. And the message here is the golden calf brings about death and the red heifer heals, can help heal. By the way, how, I don't think I mentioned this, how does it actually help heal? You know, you can't fill the void of loss. But the message of the red heifer, if you think about it, you take ashes, ashes that are symbolic of death, obviously, and you mix it with living water, mayim chayim, 
literally in the in Torah it's called Mayim Chayim, living water from a spring. I said I mentioned yesterday, living water. You put the ashes in the water, mix it together, and that means that from the the loss, the pain of death, we mix it with life. The message is we got to keep on moving, even with the 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 agony, the pain of death. We blend it with life, and we integrate it with moving forward in life. And that is, uh, that's, the, that's the powerful message. The message is there's no answer. There's no explanation for death. There's no rationale for, for loss. There's no way to explain it away. But what, but, what we, but what we know is what we must do, and that is pick up the pieces and keep on living. Take the ashes, mix it with water. In other words, move from death to life and live and carry the inspiration of our loved ones into our lives forward. That is, that is, the, way we, um, that is the way we respond to death. So we learned about the, the parallel between the golden calf and the red heifer, and then we spoke about the incident of the hitting of the rock and the fallout. Moses does not enter the land of Israel, the promised land. He led them all the way to the border, and as we'll read in the Torah, he stops at the border. He cannot go further. He passes away on the other side of the Jordan River because he hit the rock. And commentaries say it wasn't just because he hit the rock. There were other things, but that was, that was the final blow. That was what officially triggered the, the, the consequence of not entering the land, not leading the people. Dozens of reasons explaining what he did, what was the problem with hitting the rock. He hit instead of speaking. He called them rebels, demeaning them a little bit. He took credit. We, can we produce water? It's not we, it's he. It's God producing water. Um... But ultimately, I look at it positively. He was defending his people. No rock will ever look better than you. And he was so dedicated to his generation, the generation that had just passed away, that he couldn't relate to the new generation. Could be considered a liability, but ultimately it's considered, to, to me, it's a, it shows the love. He loved his people so much, and he knew so well how to deal with them, he just couldn't, there was no second act, so to speak. He just couldn't, couldn't, uh, he was so faithful and loyal to his people, he couldn't pivot to another, another generation. All right, that's it for today. Um, tomorrow we're back on. We'll continue the Torah portion, DPP tomorrow, same time, noon, same Zoom uh, link, so join me then. Tonight, Torah studies. We're going to talk about the water of Miriam, the clouds of Aaron, and the manna of Moses. Three miracles. Three tzaddikim. What happens when the tzaddikim pass away? And now the miracles are gone. Miriam dies. There's no more water. Aaron, as we'll see later on in this week's Torah portion, dies, and there are no clouds of glory. What happens? Who picks up the pieces and how? That's all tonight, 7.30 p.m. Torah studies. Please join me tonight. It's going to be a great class. All right. Um, any questions or comments? We're good to go. Good? All right. We'll see you all. Faye and Sandrine and Sarah and Ray. Great to see you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And uh, hope to see you tonight. Take care, everybody. Tough, tough for Moses, but we learn more tonight. Yes. Yeah. We'll learn more tonight. All right. We'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online 
at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.